Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep "Beyond the Frame" by Maria Marovsky, first published in Weird Tales, July 1940. It's accompanied by a beautiful illustration, and can't quite read the uh, the artist's name, but. Um, it's one of those, there's a handful of Weird Tales authors, or artists who are just terrific. It's a beautiful illustration. Um, I don't know if you twisted my arm without, you know, telling me that, I, I mean, I haven't read that many Maria Morofsky stories, but I almost think I could recognize this if you, you know, gave me a, uh, the story without the name on it. I can I can start to see her style. We've we've this is the third story we've covered by her, I think. And well, I um, Spider Woman, what's the other? Spider Woman. Ode to Pegasus. Ode to Pegasus, Pegasus relatively recently. Um and there's a lot of I think parallels with Ode to Pegasus. Uh you know, everything's different, but it's a dream story in a certain sense. Um full of history this story. Um and history, I'm not super familiar with. It's Middle Ages history, um, Polish history, Lithuanian history. Um, but you don't really need all that, I think, to get what she's doing. Um, what What was your take on it when you read it? Well, <clears throat> to skip to the conclusion, mm-hmm. um, in answer to your question... I thought of this as very much in the vein of Julio Cortázar and knowing that Cortázar began publishing in 1951 and this is from 1940, I looked at this and was just thrilled to realize that because I too know at least the two stories that we just mentioned of Moravsky before this one, I was thrilled to realize that She, in fact, it's not to say she's in the vein of Cortázar. It's to say that Cortázar is in the vein of Mm Morawski. This is quite typical of a subset of magical realism Mm -hmm. in which which times interpenetrate and viewpoints interpenetrate. Uh, And so, to me, this... This fell right into um, a, a whole and very moving genre with which I am familiar. Hmm. Uh, but I had never expected to find it in a 1940 uh, publication by a native Polish woman. Uh, this it just astounded me. Mm-hmm. So that's 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 my bottom line. Did I actually like the particular story? Um, I sort of did. Uh, the particular story means to be something of a love story, mm-hmm. but it ends with a philosophical – it ends leaving us with a philosophical question. Um, what I liked about that question, though, is that it is crucial to understand it in terms of the title, Beyond the Frame. Yeah. The title is, is very, very important, I think. Um, and – she has, she did. It's very parallel in structure, I think, to 
uh, I mean, not identical, but there's a lot of parallels in structure to Ode to Pegasus in that there's a, a going into and a coming out of. Um, and uh, that going into, uh, she's our, our main character. I, I don't know how to pronounce her last name, so I'm going to just do my best. Helena Volant- Volna? Is that how okay. you say it? Yeah. I would have said Volna, yeah. Yeah, okay. A young Polish librarian in the Slavonic department sat at her desk looking wistfully at an old painting. I I believe this is set in the States. Um, so there's... Uh, she's a librarian in a Slavonic department. Maybe it's at a university. It sounds like she's in the city because there's um, reflected um, skyscrapers. And uh, maybe it's New York or... I don't know. That's probably the uh, only place I can think of that would have skyscrapers. Maybe Chicago has them uh, significantly enough. Um, and she's looking at a at a picture, and then basically she goes into that picture, and then comes out of it. And in that in that process, um, I I think we had the same. Uh, uh, repeated lines um, in the other story. I'm, I'm trying to remember the the ones that she used, but it was it was strange. Everything became strange, or something like that. And here she she actually goes down a hallway um, with a polished floor and uh, ashen walls. And um, when I was reading this with my students, um, there's a concept very early on that was very big in the t- early 20th century and late 19th century, I guess, um, that is mentioned in the first column on the first page, racial memory. So, I guess, uh, is that most associated with Jung? Is in that- my experience, yes. Yeah. But so- it, it, it's less uh, politically uh, freighted if you use the, the other memory? term of his, which is collective unconscious. Uh, okay, okay. Um, uh, it's important, I think, to think of it in racial terms, at least a little bit, in that um, our our main character here is Polish, right? And the woman who she becomes, in a certain sense, is Polish. Um, and the young man who she falls in love with in the uh, story, <laughs> sorry, in the painting, is Polish. And uh, so is the uh, man who comes to the library um, and she falls in love with there. They're all so it's it's there is a kind of um, uh, time after time. Is wasn't there a movie called that time after time or something yes. like that? It's, yeah. it's sort of or is that is that the one where there's time travel and love story? There are a number, but that's one of them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, maybe it was with Christopher Reeve. I just I've seen this pattern before, and it's not a pattern we get much anymore. But um, I I just love that the, the explanation for how this all happens is sort of unimportant. It's she's drifting off, right? In the other uh, story, Ode to Pegasus, it's a dream. Here, it's a waking dream. I think she's just enraptured by the image in the painting. Ode to Pegasus, it seems to me, is in the largest or perhaps most profound sense. After you're done reading it, after you're done thinking about talking about it, the thing that I come away with from Ode to Pegasus is that it is a 
poignant exam- example of the conflict between uh, a desire for freedom and the mechanized, regimented world we live in. Uh, in that regard, Moravsky, I think, is like Kafka. She, I mean, he gives us people caught in bizarre fantasies, but the fantasies um, show us the reality of their pain and the nature of the modern world we're stuck in. Mm. So it, the metamorphosis, for example, it's he's a commercial traveler. You know, Gregor Samsa is a commercial traveler, and he just can't stand to be scheduled again and having to meet the the uh, train schedules, and so. He converts, you know, through no act of will. He just wakes up one morning from unquiet dreams to discover he was a gigantic cockroach. Um, bed, uh, yeah, no, insect, it says, not cockroach. Mm. Actually, he's a dung beetle. Um, that's what's going on in, in Moravsky here in Beyond the Frame. Uh, Helena Volna just looks at the painting, at the, but the painting is in a frame and the surface of the painting is protected by glass and in that glass is reflected the vision of the the uh, skyscrapers which we're told are burning but in fact they are not on fire it is the electric lighting coming out of them that makes Mm -hmm. them so right so burning is a metaphor there but they're not just skyscrapers they're skyscrapers seen through a window Mm -hmm. there's a frame of the of the one world and a frame of the other world then Moravsky has that frame that glass that that Helena is looking at somehow become diaphanous mm-hmm. and she walks through it it's reminiscent of through the looking glass the mm-hmm. begin the first chapter of uh, Lewis Carroll's second great uh, Alice book which is 1872 so it's almost 70 years a- ahead of this uh, and then she doesn't just go into it the way Alice does. We're told that the frame, that is the frame around the picture, which shows us winged hussars, that's reminiscent of the uh, the winged pegasus of the mm, other students. I didn't think about it. Yeah, you're right. Uh, of course, they're not really winged. They just carry wings with them to scare people, but they're, they're cavalrymen, um, and they have their wings. Um, she says, that is, Moravsky says, the frame widens. So that what had been an edge becomes the opening of that tunnel that you mentioned, Jesse. Mm-hmm. Can I read that section? Yeah, and, and then at the other end, she'll go in the reverse. Yes, please do. All right, so this is on page uh, oh, 113, second column. Um, groping through the reddish darkness, she stumbled over something hard and through thought without surprise that she was crossing the frame, the threshold behind which lay ancient life. The dark frame broadened, its inner edge stretched endlessly, expanding into a dark corridor with ashen walls, high ceilings, and polished, slippery floor. Further and further she walked along this dark, subway-like tunnel, with a misty opening at the end. Further and further, and then we get the dot dot dot, the opening broadened, the mist dispersed. At last she reached the end of the tunnel. A strong wind, scented with strange memories, blew into her face. Uh, that's how she enters this world, right? And when I'm she sorry, Did you say that was 115? One fi- uh, 113. Ah. 
Yeah, it's on the first uh, first page of the yes. text. And right. then um, on one eighteen, um, she's coming out of it. She passed through the heavy oak door. Between the brass wrought bars which crossed its polished planks, she walked with unearthly light steps across the cobbled court of her castle, past the armor-clad sentinels of the iron gate, beyond the lowered bridge, farther and farther towards the end of the city, where the dusty road led from its suburbs to the ancient wall. Dim light shone through the slit in the wall. She glanced through it. Strange! How thick the wall became. The slit stretched endlessly, expanding into a corridor with ashen walls and polished slippery floor. An underground passage, thought Queen Yad- Yadviga. I guess I, is that how you pronounce it? Yadviga. Sure. Um, so she, at the, when she goes in, she's Helena. When she's, you know, she, she is herself. She goes into this world. She's wearing strange clothing. And then halfway through, or at least some part way in, she's both Yadviga and Helena, right? And it mm-hmm. even has it as a dash or right beside each other. And then when she comes out of it, uh, or she's coming out of it, Helena's gone. It's just Yadviga, right? So this is very much a um, past lives story or some sort of genetic memory or racial memory or what did you call it collective unconscious i just quoting Jung. yeah mhm um it's uh it's basically a simple you know love life after time but um everything in it as far as i could tell is historically accurate i mean um maybe not helena volena <laughs> um uh, but uh the i i assumed that it was an actual painting and i went looking and i couldn't find find it that doesn't mean it doesn't exist but the wikipedia entry for this um polish queen um is extensive and her her uh husband is extensive i don't know much about whether there was a um there was uh, you know we didn't we didn't actually do a story summary at all so <laughs> oh people have to read read this story to see it's pretty short so it's not going to be too hard but um there's a um a love triangle, and it's illustrated. That scene is is in it where it begins. There's this young man; she's a queen, and she gives him a coin. And a diamond. He, uh, uh, right, you're right. It's a diamond um, to help his father uh, be healed. He is not healed. However, he immortalizes her her step in the stone. He's a stone worker. Um, as uh, my brief um, researches, uh, turns out that they actually do have her foot. Uh, she was I, 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 beatified. I think really? she was. I, I think so. Uh, or very close to it. She's um, a step below a saint, if not an actual saint. Oh no! Beatification is the step below sainthood. Canonization yeah. is the step. Right. I think saint. she. I think she was beatified and. Um, there are uh, relics and such, um, and apparently they have her foot <laughs> in a church. So I don't know. I don't know if the foot is an actual foot or if it's a stone foot. Um, but Moravsky is is drawing upon her own uh, knowledge of Polish history to write a 
basically a pulp weird fiction story and it does not feel like a regular weird tale story to me in the same way that um ode to pegasus i was i was making connections to lovecraft's dream dream cycle she's writing her own stuff she uh, as far as i can tell you know that uh connections she wouldn't uh, it's, it's almost no evidence she would have known that he was even writing those because they were all in amateur magazines um with tiny circulations you know um so she's writing her own stuff. She's writing her own uh, ideas. And, and that's why I get the sense like um, I, I could have, I feel like I could have told you that she wrote this, even though I've only read like three stories by her. Mm. You know what I mean? I do. Well, let me, I, I'd like to make a point about the frames um, it, it, that builds on the, the dream quality that you're talking about here. I, I'd also point out, by the way, that, uh, Spider-Woman is about someone who supplies props to the movie industry. Mm-hmm. So, it's again, it's about uh, creating dreams, but in a different way. Right. Um, in this story, and this will perhaps give us a, a sense more of the plot, we, we begin with the librarian seeing the framed painting, which comes from the 15th century, or at least it's picturing a 15th century activity, I believe. That's when the Hussars start start up. Um, I didn't look up Queen Yadviga. Yeah, so she's I, like 13, 1380s, I think. I, I wrote it down somewhere. If she lives into the 1400s, then she's uh, 15th eight, century. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's the Middle Ages for sure. Well, yes. Um, so we see that frame. Then we see the window frame of the modern world. They begin to merge. She walks down this corridor toward a different light and finds herself in on the road. A knight comes and picks her up. The knight um, brings her, because he recognized her as the queen, whose marriage to the Lithuanian king, talk about racial memory, is reputed to be hairy all over like a bear. Mm-hmm. Um, he's going to bring her, but when he back to, to where he should be, uh, she should be uh, for this marriage. Uh, she's the, the daughter of the king of Poland. She comes into the cathedral, sees this fellow who is fixing a wall where the cannon came through it. We're not told what, what warfare was going on, but in a sense, we've now gone from the frame of the picture and the frame of the modern world to a cathedral which has the frame of the the medieval world and this guy is walling it up to make the frame somehow extend so that it becomes a complete wall mm. he tells her that she that his father he's he's working so hard because his father is an alchemist who was burned by molten metal that he was using in an experiment aimed at transubstantiation, trying to produce, go from the base to the precious. So there is a boundary that the father tried to cross Mm. unsuccessfully uh, and became burned in that process. I use the word boundary to sort of recall the notion of frame. Our woman decides to take pity on this fellow and puts her foot on a stone 
that in fact is covered with dust because stonework is going on. The stone mm-hmm. cutter is doing it. Um, she does that to raise her foot so she can bend down and move, remove a diamond from the buckle, which she gives him to be able to hire the king's physician in hope of saving the fellow's, the fellow's father's life. Um, later we find out that it failed. But she is taking something out of its setting, mm-hmm. diamond. When she lifts her foot up, because the stone had been dusty, since it's right there where the stonework is going on, since the stone, had, when she lifts her foot up, there is a silhouette. And what the stone cutter does is cut out the border of where her foot had been. And as you say, it's historically true. So we have another frame. It's not the content of the frame that's important. It's the frame Mm. that makes us understand what's going on. So that's another frame in the story. And then, of course, we have the the, what's going on there. Why is there this political marriage? Her marriage is supposed to seal the coming together of Lithuania and Poland. And if this is to happen, then there's going to be the Christianization of the population. We are told that what will happen is they'll do them in batches in the river and everyone will get a white shirt and a loaf of bread. Well, people will do that. You know, they'll be baptized for Mm -hmm. that. So they're going to cross a frame from pagan to Christian. But we're also told that they have now when we get more future further in the future, a holiday which masks the pagan holiday as Easter. So an Easter, of course, is a time when we celebrate, or some people do, uh, the notion that Jesus comes out of his bodily frame Mm. and as the Holy Ghost ascends to heaven. In the beginning of this story, when Helena is first trying to understand what she's seeing, the narrator says she was able to observe herself as if a soul had come out of its own body and was looking back on it, which is what made me remember that we often talk about the body as this human frame. We're also told that past, she can't tell whether she having a memory or Mm -hmm. recollection, excuse me, or a, a premonition. The past and the future are framed that is divided by the present, but they interpenetrate here. So at the end when this librarian finds herself with uh, Jan Groholski, the uh, the fellow who wants to have access to the painting, she doesn't know exactly whether she has always seen him or she will see him. Notice what he does. He tries to reproduce this picture by drawing a copy in silver point. Mm-hmm. Right, the finest possible drawing, it makes the finest possible line. It's in a way the exact opposite of that broadening frame that turns into something else. So the question becomes, what is a frame? It's your body. It's a sense of boundary. It's a sense of containment. It defines what's within it. It defines the present and separates the past from the future. And in this story, we even see that frame as the iris around the pupil and both the stonecutter and Jan Roholsky, who comes in in the modern American moment, um, have gray eyes with cobalt blue right close to the pupil. 
as if you can see into the sky, but from that, that inner, inner sky is unfathomable blackness. The last lines then, sudden lightning from the electric storm lit up the sky. They're sitting in the librarian's office. He's, he's made the painting or the drawing. And in that brief, dazzling light, she saw a glimpse of the future. She could not see the details, but one indelible impression remained. Jan and herself bound together forever by a link of timeless destiny. Mm-hmm. So you called it a love story, and I, I guess that it is. But just as I think of some other stories having at bottom some more pervasive theme, here we see the final coming together as transcending the notion of frame altogether. That is, she doesn't know whether they are bound together in the past, in the present, in the future. In fact, those words, which are temporal frames, are now gone. It's timeless destiny, just as they might easily be the people in the picture or out of the picture. This whole story is about, I think, at some other deeper philosophical level, how we understand the world by framing it. Mm -hmm. And she offers the notion, that is Moravsky, that the deepest, most haunting love is one that can go beyond the world by going beyond the frame. This is a philosophical story Mm -hmm. as, as a love story. I, uh, there's a word I picked up that uh, complements what you're saying. Um, this is on page 114, um, uh, second, first column near the bottom. Uh, and then Helena realized that she was the expected princess. She looked at her clothes. They were strangely cut and rich. Even under the layer of dust, she could see how shiny was the silk of her voluminous skirt and fur-edged bodice. How thick was the plush of her amaranthine mantle? And I was like, amaranthine, that sounds familiar. Um, So it's a word meaning uh, immortal, unfading. Um, Really? Yep. I thought it was a color. It is a color. I thought it was reddish brown. It is definitely reddish uh, and sort of dark reddish. Um, But it's rooted in the words um, Greek meaning immortal and unfading. Anthos meaning flower, so it's like uh, the unfading flower, and hence the color, right? Now it comes up again on page 116 uh, in the second paragraph. Um, The amaranthine flags of Poland, redder than blood and brighter than flame, fluttered in the breeze that smelled of burning pine. Their gilded tassels sparkled in the light of the gay bonfires started on the streets, Men in embroidered sukmanas and girls aflutter with ribbons crowded around them. So the color could have been, you know, the flag of Poland is white and white and red. Um, but if it's an amaranthine flag, right, the the red never fades. White white can't fade; it's Just, already white. I, 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 you're absolutely right, Jesse. I had not not thought about that uh, aspect of the word amaranthine. It's it's it's. It, that's apparently what it meant when Milton coined it in the 17th century. By the 19th century, it's used 
primarily as a color. Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm sure Moravsky understood just what you're saying. So it, I thank you for that. She she it's really interesting. You know, the, the Wikipedia entry on her is extensive. It doesn't. I don't think it mentions a single time that she's ever been published as a weird fiction author, right? That's the only way we interact with her. Um, but she's she's somebody has done an extensive research on her and f- finds her fascinating. Her life story fascinating. Her poetry is um, cited many times. Um, she, it's starting to rem- her grasp of English as a second language seems to. It's like reminding me of. Um, Joseph Conrad, he, he was Polish too, wasn't he? Yes. Yeah, and there's this, you know, grasp of of English words better than native English speakers in both of these writers' writings. Um, and the thing is, is there's so much going on in this story that seems symbolic, but because I'm so distant, like I I'd, I'd never heard of Yadviga this. This you're calling her a queen. Uh, did you know she was crowned as king? Huh. Like I, I did. I was reading that Wikipedia entry, trying to trying to find that picture uh, that that you know is being described here. Um, and I believe there's some evidence that Morovsky's um, character is acknowledging that the, the hussars are not historically accurate. Right. What often happens in you know historical paintings is people. Uh, paint them long after the events, right? And so they just throw in ahistorical stuff because it looks cool, <laughs> and it's also associated with that place. So, the the fact that the hussars uh, shouldn't have wings at this time, um, but the fact that the the king of Lithuania who's coming in here was a, a pagan, and that he swears there's a pagan god mentioned in here. I never heard of before. Um, a Perun is his name. Uh, this is on page 116. Va- Vakla wants to get to work at the court. Not while I live. He knows how to cut figures for tombstones. Yes, by Peru, none of our family needs one yet. Please do not swear by the pagan gods. Yadviga admonished him gently. Well, he's just been con- he's mass converted uh, his people to Christianity. Right? They all went down to the river and they all got their their white uh, smock and their loaf of bread. Um, and he says something that, or is it the narrator who says it? Something that they would have done twice <laughs> to get those <laughs> things, right? Um, there is a uh, all sorts of stuff going on in the histor- historical aspect, and yet it's a short story. You you wouldn't you wouldn't see all of this going on, but um, that attempt to Christianize the Lithuanians was actually uh, apparently. Uh, to prevent the Teutonic Knights from attacking them on a crusade, and it didn't work. The Teutonic Knights were like, "We don't believe you." <laughs> but more importantly, that's the it, it, it was like there's this all this sort of background swirling around that gives it authenticity. But you know, as a just reading it the first time, I don't know any of this stuff. I just feel like, oh, there's lots going on here. Um, so I, I feel like if I was more familiar with um, uh, p- medieval Polish history, I would be like even more impressed than I am by this story. I am sure you're right, but Jesse, I, I really have to scold you. Uh-huh. I mean, I thought you were an expert in medieval Polish history. 
No. Sorry. Well, then I guess there will always be more to say. (laughs) And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for reading short and deep. Thank you.